From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, mobilizing the endothelium and targeted cross-linking at AAO. The human cornea probably has some mitotic ability, uh, particularly in the periphery and particularly at a younger age. But in most patients, we we are relying on a a population that exists to migrate and and repopulate the central cornea. First this. I travel a lot. It's one of the perks of the work I do. As fantastic as Hangzhou or Jaipur or Barcelona are, I'm always amazed at how beautiful my own country is. Nowhere is this more in evidence than in Park City, Utah. Words truly fail. That's why I'm so happy that iWorld holds its surgical summit in Park City. Join me in this collegial, informal, and highly educational event in one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Go to surgicalsummit.iworld.org. That's surgicalsummit.iworld.org. I'll see you on the slopes. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2018 annual meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology in Chicago. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Greg Maloney on mobilizing the endothelium in primary decimase stripping using a rokinase inhibitor, and from Rohit Shetty on targeted cross-linking for keratoconus. I'm here with Greg Maloney. Uh, Greg, we, we've, we've spoken in, in, the, in the past a little bit preliminarily about this absolutely brilliant work that, 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 you're, that you're doing. And by the way, I want to congratulate you on winning the uh, Troutman Award from the Cornea Society for, for this uh, work, for this paper. Thank you. Um, so uh, the, you, you have studied uh, primary desmetorexis, which is to remove the endothelium without then performing any sort of uh, uh, graft. There's no no allographic tissue. Um, and this is something that has been discussed uh, with, with um, fervor uh, recently. But you, what you've done is you've described employing a rock inhibitor to aid in the, the mobilization of the peripheral endothelial cells. First of all, talk me through this and then fill me in on what's been going on since you and I spoke last. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk again. But um, no, I, I think uh, when we last spoke, I think what we, were, what we knew about um, removing uh, decimose membrane and not implanting a graft was that if you do that in Fuchs dystrophy, um, in a certain type of Fuchs patient who has central catarta, mainly affecting the vision, they had about an 80% chance to heal on their own. Um, uh, that was what we found and others found as well. Um, but that healing time could be variable, and there was a, obviously that percentage of patients who, who wouldn't respond or wouldn't clear their cornea. Um, based on the basic science work from the group in Kyoto, which is uh, Naoki uh, Okamura, um, Noriko Koizumi, and Shigeru Kinoshida, we, we um, attempted in our patients who were failing that initial surgery in our first surgical trial 
to rescue the non-clearing corneas with topical rock inhibitor therapy, um, and we were um, successful in doing that. <coughs> Based on those results, we uh, have moved into a second phase of a clinical trial where patients are receiving a topical rokinase inhibitor immediately after surgery, and what we're seeing now is quite surprising and, and exciting um, in, those, in those early results. So let, 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 let's just walk, walk this topic bit back a little bit, sure. because although it's not, it, not, not novel to me now that you have spoken a couple times with you, it is novel to a lot of our, our viewers. First of all, in primary desmetorexis, um, the there is um, a a repopulation of endothelial cells in the area where the endothelium has been stripped. Is this uh, simply a migration of extant endothelial cells from the peripheral cornea, which has not been stripped, mm. or is there um, mitosis going on? I mean, are, are, are there are there new cells? We we in our initial studies of that of this surgery, we certainly can find and you can find mitotic figures in the peripheral cornea. Um, but I guess the final um, uh, uh, value that counts is what is the total peripheral corneal cell count doing or the total corneal cell count doing in the centre and in the periphery. And from this analysis of, those, of that cell count data, the cell counts go down. So it's mainly, we believe, a migration that is um, producing that repopulation of the central endothelial cells. Um, the human cornea probably has some mitotic ability, uh, particularly in the periphery and particularly at a younger age. But in most patients, we, we are relying on a, a population that exists to migrate and, and repopulate the central cornea. What does uh, rokinase have to do with the endothelium? So, I mean, the rokinase is an enzyme that was discovered in 1996. Um, we, as ophthalmologists, we're, we're late to the study of this uh, and, and what it can do for us in the body. Um, so it, it has cellular effects throughout the body. Um, and in many different organs and, and many different cells. What we believe, or how it relates to the eye, is that it is a, it, it's an essential, or inhibition of rokinase is an essential function of neural crest migration during uh, embryogenesis. Um, and the, the most consistent effect we see of rokinase inhibition in the eye is a morphologic change of cells into a more mesenchymal phenotype that's more capable of, of moving, of migrating. Um, uh, we believe that that is the main effect that we're, we're utilising in this surgery is to is to push those cells into a more a more mobile form so that they can uh, overcome whatever local inhibitory factors exist and cover over that um, that cell defect. Okay, I have three questions, but I, I, I intend for them to be my last questions yeah, anyway. Sure. Okay, number one, what is your treatment protocol? Okay, number two. What are the pathologies that you're treating? Is it just fuchs or is it pseudophagic pulskeratopathy and stuff like that? Um, high drops, maybe. Uh, and number three, what, what have your, your results been? If you can share them with me. Sure. I think, I think um, uh, we had initial great enthusiasm that um, topical rokinase inhibition would, would salvage the cornea in lots of the situations that you're describing. Um, our, our clinical experience that's been borne out is that's possibly not the case, and we don't have great hope that in the pseudophagic uh, bullous case uh, with a low existing low cell count that you're, you're not going to salvage that cornea with the use of topical rokinase inhibitor alone. Um, its main utility appears to be if there's been an endothelial defect created, um, let's say through our surgery where we deliberately remove guitar, or for instance even in cataract surgery if there's an unintentional um, uh, touching of the endothelium, 
that topical rhaconase inhibitor is useful for um, accelerating the healing in that circumstance. It, it has probable other cellular effects that are more difficult to measure and are going to take more, um, uh, more science for us to, to properly answer. But what we can say for sure is that if you compare time to healing without a rhaconase inhibitor in our first study and time to healing with the rhaconase inhibitor in our, in our second study, the mean time to healing in the first trial was 13 weeks um, with no help from a rhaconase inhibitor. And in the second study, it was 4.3 weeks. That's a tremendous difference. Yeah. And, sorry, your, your treatment protocol, what's the, 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 the regimen? Do you, do you start it prior to surgery or, or just after surgery? And just, just after surgery. And um, the, the initial dose we based and we designed our, study, our second phase study around was, was based on basic science um, from the Kyoto group, which suggested uh, a dosing of six times a day. What we've seen now, I think that that dosage needs to be analysed, and we've done a lot of safety data on the use of that of that drug. We're using it; patients are needing it for a little longer than we fir- at first realised. So I think that correct dosage is going to be examined and probably brought down from that. Um, I think that uh, that's that's still still under debate right now in meetings happening even today. But uh, we have seen what we've known what we've learned about the dosing is really two things. It's probably necessary at. Uh, higher dosing than use for using glaucoma, which is a BD dosing for the, the agent we're using, which is rapacitol. Um, but perhaps six times a day might be too much. I think four times a day would be a good um, next dosing schedule to examine. But um, uh, the other thing we're seeing is that um, a tapered um, release of the drug is probably also necessary. Some patients, when we stop the drug, um, are having a relapse of edema. But that's so interesting. Yeah. We have no, so far, no explanation for that. Yeah, I was going to say it's not that the, the, all the little cells are then you know scattering back out to the, to the to the periphery. It's clearly multimodal. Yeah, so it can only be we assume a, a recurrence of a problem with the barrier function, or the pump function of the endothelium, and we're yet to determine which of those two really it is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, Greg, I want to thank you very much for, for updating me on this, for you know, sharing this, this wonderful work. Congratulations once more. Uh, and I uh, hope that uh, this is a trend and that, that at future meetings that you and I get to, thank get you to talk much. again. Uh, and as always, uh, I want to thank you for the generosity of your, of your time. Thank you. I must also add, uh, in every talk I give on this, I try to acknowledge the Sydney Eye Hospital Foundation, which has funded all of our work into this and made all of these findings possible. I'm here with Rohit Shetty. Rohit, you spoke about a really, really interesting subject. Cross-linking, there's no question, has changed the uh, way that, that, we, that we manage patients with ectatic disorders, with keratoconus, uh, post-LASIK, all of these sort of, sorts of uh, things. Uh, but you've, you're, you're taking things sort of one step beyond that with a customized beam profile. Now, I know what each of those words separately mean, in conjunction, I don't know really what I just said. So why don't you 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 you, you spell things out for us? Fifteen years back, uh, when the group from Germany, Dresden, introduced cross-linking, they looked at cornea as a one-hole shape or structure, and a beam profile was used for a whole cornea as a whole. Lately, we've been seeing many reports that the fingerprints of how the cornea structurally is func- is in the in, in the keratoconic eye differs from the cone to the periphery. I did work on uh, molecular biology and where we looked at uh, the collagen 
the lysoloxidase and many other structures, we took the epithelium from the cone and we took the epithelium from the periphery during <coughs> cross-linking, we found that structurally the cornea was completely different in the cone to the periphery. So one size cannot fit everything. And recent evidence from Brillouin microscopy has shown that the biomechanical change is completely different in the cone complete to the periphery. So we started looking at why should the beam profile be uniform to an area which needs probably more energy and more cross-linking compared to the area which is on the periphery which, need, <clears throat> which requires less. So what we started doing is uh, from the mosaic system of uh, Evidro, we started looking at using different beam profiles. Fortunately, this technology allows us to change the energy from the cone to the periphery. You can alter the, the duration of the, uh, the treatment and you can use more or less. And we published this paper a uh, year back about different beam profile and the safety features. And we found that it's safe. Uh, we did go up to around 10 to 12 joules per centimeter square. We used the tangential maps and the results were much more promising than the conventional cross-linking. So future of cross-linking is definitely going to be more customized than what we are doing today. So this is really, really, really interesting stuff. I have a question. Of course, I mean, that's what I do, right? Um, the, when we're cross-linking, we're influencing the biomechanics of the cornea. When you're choosing a, a profile, um, I'm curious what the input data is that you're using to determine what the treatment profile is going to be. Because, for example, if you're using topography, then you're not directly using biomechanical data, even though the effect that you're producing is a biomechanical effect. Or is it, I mean, I can't imagine that you're doing, you know, sort of Brion mapping for each each cornea that you're treating. I don't, maybe you are. Uh, so where 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 do the 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 data come from that help you determine a treatment pattern for a particular patient? At this point of time, uh, unfortunately, we have to look more at the topography than any of the biomechanical tools because the current biomechanical tools does not really differentiate the cone versus the periphery. Periphery is your normal area. Uh, but there are Brillouin microscopies one, which probably would help us to map out the regions better. We also working with the Oculus to develop a multi-zone corvus. We have a prototype of it, where we're looking at the zones from the inferior to superior and the other zones uh, in the cornea. So along with technology, be the cross customized cross-linking, we also need to develop, like you rightly said, methods to measure what is really happening. And also the most important measure is also looking at uh, the, the molecular signature. For example, that's the area of where I work, where I come from the lab, where you're looking at the lysol oxidase from the epithelium or the tears. We're trying to develop a kit which can probably pick them up and say that, for example, if you have more of lysol oxidase, it's an endogenous cross-linker. It's all there in our eye, in the cornea. It helps to cross-link naturally. If you have it more, that means the cross-link is better. We, we did publish this work uh, last year. So all these factors put together will help us to plan the cross-link, customize cross-linking better. However, 
As we stand today, the only means is definitely a topography. A really, really, really interesting stuff. This whole sort of targeted therapy, uh, you know, the field so 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 new and yet it's moving so quickly. Uh, Rohit, I want to thank you for bringing this this super super interesting topic to us, uh, and as always for being so very generous with your time with us. Thank you. Greg Maloney comes to us from Mossman, Australia. Rohit Shetty is vice president of the Narayana Nathraya Eye Institute in Bangalore, India. Ask questions of Dr. Maloney, Dr. Shetty, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.